This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And welcome to episode 102. It's very exciting. We had episode 100 last week, which was sort of a special deal. Uh, my wife listened to it, Sam, said she liked it. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed you know, our, what we put together talking about how the podcast came to be and, uh, where we kind of hope that it's going to go. But, but we're back to the business of Bible study <laughs> this week. <laughs> and we come now to, uh, first Kings chapter 19 and the aftermath. What happens the next day after Elijah has his moment of triumph? Before we get into 19 here, Sam, why don't you just quickly recap for the people what happened, you know, what we went through in 101 with Elijah and Mount Carmel. And it sets the stage a little bit so we understand why Elijah should be expecting big things and good things here. Why is this going to be such a big crash for him? All right. So if, if you've been, if you haven't been following the previous episodes and the story of Elijah, or if you've forgotten, uh, going back to the beginning, when you come to Ahab and Jezebel, they are the new king and queen of Israel who come up and they're, over the ten northern tribes, and unlike previous generations that you know at least kind of nodded to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, uh, but then merged it with other beliefs, Ahab and Jezebel have totally cast Yahweh off. They are at war with Yahweh. They're killing the prophets of Yahweh, and they want everyone to start worshiping Baal, who's a storm god, and Asherah, um, which you know is a fer- also fertility and some other things. So when Elijah comes along at the beginning of the story, he comes to Ahab and says, there's not going to be rain in the land until I give my word. And that's an assault at Baal. It's basically saying I'm Mm -hmm. overthrowing the work of Baal. You think Baal is a storm god? Well, it's not going to rain. And it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Right. And Elijah becomes the most wanted man. He's off. You know, God's taking care of him in in places where Elijah is getting humbled all during this time. And after three years – God comes to Elijah and says, okay, now's the time. I want you, you know, I'm going to set up this contest where all of Israel is going to come together around Mount Carmel and we're going to have a contest. And it's going to be whichever one is truly God will send down fire or lightning or whatever this would have been to consume an offering in front of the entire nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so the contest starts with all the prophets of Baal. Worked up in a frenzy, cutting themselves and raving around. Jumping up to and get, down, hopping yeah. around. Really, yeah. Yeah, trying to draw Baal's attention, trying to wake him up in a sense. Mm-hmm. And Elijah's mocking them. You know, is your God, is your God gone on a trip? Is he meditating something? Is he distracted? Is he pooping? Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they can't do it. They go all day long and then Elijah gets up and takes all this disadvantage, pours water all over everything. Um, and then he says, you know, this day, I want you to choose for yourself whom you're going to serve. Is it going to be God or Baal? And then God, you know, swallows up the the offering with fire. It's this big triumphant moment where clearly Yahweh is God and Baal and Asherah are utterly powerless. God has just shown this. He's proven it. 
He's, you know, checked off all the boxes of evidence. And all of Israel says, okay, yes, yes, the Lord is God. Yeah, we'll serve him. But it's it's an empty profession, as we'll see. And Elijah, this is his great moment. He's just invested three years of his life, really real hardships and sufferings, being wanted, being alone, all by yourself, it seems. He's had this great moment. He's been longing to see revival. He's longed to see the end of idolatry and wickedness in the nation. And he has this great victory. All the prophets of Baal have been put to death in the Kishon River. And now Elijah gives the word, rain comes, and he is running back to Jezreel. Um, he's running back because now there's victory. He's probably assuming that there's going to be some changes in the throne uh, because of what's happening. Either they're going to repent and tur- or turn or God is going to overthrow Ahab and Jezebel. So he's he's running back to the capital city, probably assuming that like his forebearers, like Joseph and Daniel, that he's coming in as a prophet and he is going to be able to help steer the ship of Israel to mm-hmm. govern it, right? He's coming to the capital city and to the, the halls of power and he does not get the welcome he expects. <laughs> Which is a – that's quite the understatement. <laughs> <laughs> So we come to chapter 19, uh, verse 1. It reads, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. I want to pause for a second mm-hmm. because there's, boy, there's a number of things right here at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The first thing, as I was reading this, I thought, you know, Jezebel didn't come with them to Mount Carmel. That's, that's one thing. Um, because, you know, we've had this conversation at different times about, you know, why doesn't God just prove himself? Why, mm-hmm. why does he want us to, why is it all this like s- seemingly secret faith, this internal work of the spirit? Why doesn't God just plop down in the middle of Times Square and say, Mm -hmm. I am the Lord and watch, I'm going to like make a mountain rise up from the street right here while we're, you know, he could do that. He could do that. Mm -hmm. However, here's an example of Ahab and all the nations, all the people of of Israel, and I don't know that it was every single person, but it was enough of the tribes that there was a really, really good representative of the leadership there. Mm -hmm. And they saw definitively without any question that God's the real, that God is the real God. And they saw the demonstration of Yahweh's power. They proclaimed the Lord. He is God. You're thinking at that point, surely now that's going to get, and this is what Elijah's thinking. Surely now mm-hmm. Ahab is here. All the people were here. They're going to go back and there's not going to be anything that Jezebel can do other than say, well, if you guys all saw that, well, then Yahweh must be God. Mm-hmm. But what we have here is an example of when someone is opposed to the Lord, um, and they're just, they're gonna, they're not having any part of it. They don't want anything to do with it. They don't darken the door of a church. They don't want to have a conversation about the gospel. They've got no time for the Bible. They think it's all a book of myths. Whatever it is that, you know, it, that has them in opposition to the Lord, it doesn't matter what God mm-hmm. were to do to prove himself. They would still not accept it. You know, yeah. it's like, this is the, this to me is the definitive answer of why doesn't God just come out and do something dramatic? I'm like, like, I don't know, like 
burning up an altar and, <laughs> and some stones <laughs> that was soaked with – I mean, this is as dramatic as it gets. Yeah, yeah Romans, Romans 1 makes that case that there's no true atheists, that in, deep down we all know that there's something greater than us and that we're going to be accountable to. And Romans 1 says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Meaning we don't want to be accountable to anything. And so we'll, we'll lie to ourselves. And no matter what evidence is presented to us, we reject it. You know, Jesus, well, it, this came to mind when you were talking and the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. This is not the Lazarus who is raised from the dead, by the way. This Lazarus is this poor beggar and he's basically abused by this rich man. And the rich man lives his life for his own pleasure and he goes to hell. And in this parable, it's it's the story of this guy crying out from hell for some temporary relief. And he's saying, oh, if only I had known, you know. And what what is Jesus in this parable is speaking back to him? And it's like even, even if there was a resurrection from the dead, people would not believe. And he's – that's prophetic, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus is going to be raised from the dead and the nation of Israel remains – obstinate right they refuse i mean and so there's some i mean i i believe (laughs) that jesus is god and i'm still obstinate Mm -hmm. and i still live as though i'm the center of the universe right um so that's not just that's that doesn't just apply to uh, unbelievers like that's that's the the condition of sin that we all have we all want to believe that we're the center of the universe Mm -hmm. um and no matter what evidence comes we want to protect our wickedness yeah and that's what they're doing. And in this case, you know, the Lord doing what he did, establishing in the minds of the people that he was the true God and that Baal is no God at all, that Baal just isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, he's taking away their excuses, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that. It's like, you know, as the people continue to be hardened in their heart toward God, as they continue to be, you know, pigheaded and obstinate and not turn toward him, eventually God will act to, I mean, really just destroy that nation. I mean, he has a, they, they're, they're taken into captivity. The nation is overrun and they have no one to blame at that point, but themselves. It's like God has taken away all their excuses. He's given them, you know, time after time after time, the opportunity to turn back toward him. And he's given them, even at this moment, these most dramatic of moments, no one could blame them for turning back to the Lord. And still the nation doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's taken away all our excuses, you know, and yeah. I think that that's, uh, it's, it's something that when we read these Old Testament stories and we think about them in terms of our modern context, Sam, I feel like one of the things that it's trying to tell us is for the people that reject the Lord and for them, everything goes wrong. They have nothing, no one to blame for it, but themselves. It's like God is not at fault because he didn't get through to you. He's given you enough. There's Mm -hmm. nothing else that you would need to have. That's the point that Romans one makes too, Mm -hmm. that it's evident in creation. Just look at, just look at everything that's out there. And that's enough for you to be able to recognize that there is a higher power, a creator. Mm -hmm. And Elijah is making this presumption. And this is why he collapses into despair, as we'll see in this chapter. He's making the assumption that if he can win the argument, he'll win the people. Yes. Um, and that's not <laughs> that. And as a pastor, you learn this real quick. That's not the way it works. Yeah, I man. Winning the argument doesn't win the people. I told somebody one time one of one of the old sayings that I had coming out of Bible college, where I went to a Bible college where it was. Um, hmm, how do I put this? 
it's like soul winning was a combat sport. Um, I'm, I'm trying to try to, to, to understand how it is like it, it was like it was about it was a numbers game. You wanted people to, you know, tell you that they were making the decision to pray the sinner's prayer to to, you know, give you that affirmation of faith. There was. No, not really any follow up, not really any discipleship. It was haphazard at best. It, mm-hmm. um, and it was, I came away from that with a great aversion to that style of soul winning. I'm really not about the numbers. I'm not about, let's get how many people to put their hands up and say, we're, you know, we're coming to Jesus. I don't care how many people walk the aisle. Mm-hmm. What I care about is a year down the road, how many of those people we, that we preached to are following Jesus. That's what I'm, mm-hmm. you know, concerned about. So at any rate, um, as part of this, they would always send us out to during spiritual emphasis week, we would be handed a big pack of these gospel tracks and turned loose on the city. It was like soul winning day. And we were supposed to go out and literally like Mormons without their bicycles, we were supposed to go wandering <laughs> about the city and paper everybody with these gospel tracks. And most of the people from the Bible college just made, just went, made beeline to the Hollywood mall. So soul winning day at the Hollywood mall in Hollywood, Florida was like, don't be there. Don't go there. <laughs> if, unless you want, unless you want five Bible college students to hit you with a heaven track from one end of the mall to the other, you can't even go into Barnes and Noble or whatever without, you know, getting attacked by five of them. So at any rate, um, I just, I had, I had no part of it. I didn't participate in it. I just wouldn't do it. Great consternation. I was being rebellious and so forth. And this is what I used to tell them all the time. No one has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. No one. So if you think that you're going to go out there and argue with people and reason with them and show them incontrovertible facts and that they're going to suddenly bow to your divinely inspired logic, you do not know how salvation works. Yeah, we're, we're, we're running off on a rabbit trail, but there was a, one of the, I was watching a special on the revival that's happening in Iran right now. And according to this particular documentary that I was watching, Iran is the fastest growing church in the world right now in the place where it's the most persecuted. But the guy said something I thought was really fascinating, and it kind of blew me over in my shoes. He said, you know, by the way that we count whether or not somebody's making an authentic profession of faith, you know, you have to affirm that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the dead – you know, and really understand the gospel. He took your sins, gave you his righteousness, that kind of summary. The guy was like, you realize that for the three years that Jesus had his ministry, none of his disciples were saved? Not one. <laughs> they didn't understand what he was doing. They misunderstood his kingdom. They didn't get the resurrection. They didn't understand the atonement. For three years, he poured into a group of unbelievers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And after the resurrection came home, you know, as they say, after the coin dropped, when they got the resurrection, after three years of discipleship, they came to faith. Yep. And he was like, the modern church makes the error. And I think that's totally brilliantly and profoundly true. The modern church makes the mistake of believing that evangelism comes first and then you disciple. And every model that you find, and I mean, most models, I shouldn't say every most models you find in the New Testament in the early church is doing life together and they come to faith along the way. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're discipling and then they come to faith. And I think of my own life and my own ministry. It's people that I've befriended who've been, who come to events or who we, you know, we're talking who all of a sudden they're like, I get this. I want this. Um, 
But evangelism is in the process of discipleship. It can't be divorced from it. Sure. Well, I mean, and that is the Great Commission, which I realize that we have manuscripts that want to arm wrestle over whether that's actually in the Bible or not. But I, you know, I tend to believe that it is, you know, oh, sure. go and make disciples. Well, I mean, that's that mm-hmm. is one of those disputed passages with the critical text as to whether really. Yep. As to whether that's actually there or not. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's in multiple places. You can pick it up in Acts. If yes. You, if but you I just love I just love the way it is in Mark. I love yeah. that, you know, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Um, it doesn't say go, therefore, and evangelize and then get them into your new members program and then get them into your, you know, your growth plan and so forth. It's go and make disciples. You know? But as my father-in-law would say, what's the best form of evangelism? Whichever one you'll do, (laughs) you know, yeah. like I appreciate the people who do go out and street evangelize, which makes me uncomfortable. Maybe it shouldn't, but, you know, they're more obedient than I am most times. So, but I do think discipleship is critically missing from a lot of those models. And I, and I am not going to, and I'm not going to back off this aspect of it. I appreciate those people that go out and street evangelize with a heart of love and a gentleness. Oh my gosh. The Uh, college um, campus. I black robe guys. I have no patience at all for people that evangelize aggressively and argumentatively and with condemnation, with condemnation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's just not, no. I'm sorry. I'm not going to – those people I don't appreciate. I would prefer that you not help us. Yeah. Yeah, a, now we're really prolonging the rabbit trail. But I remember talking with a friend and he met someone for the first time and had condemned their behavior before, and then he shared the gospel with them. And he was feeling conflicted about it and he came to me and he said, "You know, do you think what I did was wrong? And I said, well – you know, everything in me wants to tell you not to worry about it, but the reality is, dude, that's not how Jesus operated. You know, when Jesus came to somebody who was in sin, who was in open sin and in shameful sin, Jesus never leads with, you're wrong, you're doing wrong. Any of those stories, the woman at the well, John 8, you know, Jesus will always show that person that they are valuable, mm-hmm. that he sees them, that he loves them. And then he'll say, go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, <laughs> you're, you're finding your identity in all these husbands, the woman at the well, like you need to come to the Lord. Like he, but he always shows, he'll confront the sin, but it's after he makes sure that they know that he sees them and values them. Yeah. Well, and that's an excellent segue from our rabbit trail or squirrel trail or whatever <laughs> we're on back to the text, because in this next section, we're going to see how God values Elijah. Um, back to back to First Kings 19, verse 4. But he himself, that's Elijah, in case you lost the story while we were rabbit trailing. Yeah, and but, to set this up real quick, because we forgot, in verse 3 it says that he ran for his life. So, yes. Which is just crazy to me that he's gone on this mountain with 450 prophets of Baal and kings and everything else. He's not afraid of losing his life. But even after the victory – when this Jezebel threatens him, which shows you how wicked she is. He really believes her. Right. He's thrown off. Like, he can't believe it. Like, still? And he runs for his life in fear. It's the first time that you've seen Elijah go anywhere or do anything outside of the command of God. You go through the previous chapters, and it will always say, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, go do this. And then Elijah goes and does it. Right. But in fear, it's the first time Elijah does something 
on his own, apart from the Lord's call. Mm-hmm. And he runs down and he goes to Beersheba, which is the southernmost city in Israel. So he's left of the ten northern tribes. He's going down through Judah and he is at the dead southernmost point of Israel. And then I think he goes even outside yeah, Israel. he does. So he goes further south. But And by the way, I'm glad you said that, that he was afraid and he ran for his life. I think that he was – that part of what gutted him was just his unbelievable disappointment mm-hmm. at the fact that the people didn't come in and go, the Lord, he is God, in front yeah. of Jezebel. They yeah. came back and went, what happened? <laughs> um, Elijah <laughs> killed the prophets of Baal. That's the that's what they took from this. What what yeah. happened down there? Elijah killed the prophets of Baal. Mm-hmm. Really? Not not the Lord showed up and burned up the altar. Not, you know, no, it's Elijah killed the prophets. That's what they went back to her with. So yeah. I do think that that's them. But it, but I will say this, and spoiler alert, I don't mean to, uh, but, but he, this is it for him. This is it for Elijah. From now on, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and sometimes he does part of what he says. It's different from now on. I'm serious. As we go through the rest of the life of Elijah here, you're going to see that when the word of the Lord comes to Elijah now, Elijah maybe does it, and he does part of it. And you're like, that's... He's still amazing, but he's a broken prophet. He's a broken prophet. Exactly. He is amazing. He's a... And and the really encouraging thing is how this story ends. And I'm not going to spoil that. We'll get to that at the end. (laughs) But but at the end of it, God shows such honor to Elijah again. Mm -hmm. And and so this here is a message to everyone who has been broken, is that the Lord does not turn away from broken people. He does not forget you when you're broken. Mm-hmm. He comes and he comes this way. Let's read what that's uh, But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness, so further out from Beersheba, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, and I love this, for the journey is too great for you. Mm -hmm. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. That I, there's so many things I love about this part of the story, Sam. But the, mm-hmm. first and foremost, I love the care that the Lord shows to Elijah. It's like Elijah is a broken prophet. He's a broken man. He mm-hmm. is ready. He literally wants to die. He wants it to be over. He wants the Lord to take him to end his life right then. And God says, you know what? You need to rest and you need to eat and you need to be cared for. And the Lord shows such tenderness to Elijah mm-hmm. here. It's awesome. Yeah. I, I remember when I had a season of burnout a couple uh, – before I took a sabbatical three years ago or so, this chapter was so precious to me. Um, and the reason why it was so precious is I just come through you know seven years of administrating at a school, lots of intense ministry, lots of – High intensity situations, lots of and, picking up the pieces, as I yeah, recall. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Many pieces had to be picked up. So yeah, and I was just spiritually exhausted, and it was like I would, you know, a major thing would happen, and I would think I've got strength for this, 
and it would be like somebody would just throw this light comment to me and it would destroy me. It would yeah. crush me yeah. under the weight of it. I mean, in hindsight, it was like, why in the world did I care what they said, you know? But in the moment, it just totally destroyed me. And I remember, you know, here's Elijah who has stood up to everybody. He has warred through and been faithful and endured suffering and loneliness and everything else. And one word from Jezebel crushes him. And I remember thinking, dude, that's me. <laughs> you, know, you know, I shouldn't care what this woman thinks, but it's crushing when you're fighting and you so desperately want to see, you know, the kingdom advance and it doesn't. And you just, you don't see it. And you get naysayers and people who stand in your way and 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 speak, and you just think, man, it's not going to come, and it's just crushing, it's debilitating. And so when he runs away and he goes and lays down under a broom tree, there's there's a lot that's going on there. My wife, when we were in seminary, wrote a paper uh, for a Hebrew class, which I love her commentary on this. But one of the things that she pointed out in that paper is Elijah is recreating the story of Ishmael. And if you know the story of Ishmael, Abraham has two sons. One of them is the promised son, Isaac, and the other son is a relationship that Abraham had an adulterous affair with his maidservant and had Ishmael. And eventually, Ishmael is violent and he's threatening Isaac, and so Abraham sends him away. And Hagar, who's this really sweet Egyptian woman whom God shows just tremendous mercy and compassion for, where does she go? She goes down to Beersheba, the same place that it says that Elijah initially went. And she leaves her son under a, a bush, and she's like, he's going to die. I'm going to leave him here. We're out in this desert. There's no food. The sun is scorching. We have nowhere to go. He's going to die. And God shows up and says, no, no, no. I'm going to rescue you, Hagar. I'm going to show compassion to your son. There's a well. Go get water. He he shows compassion. He gives her drink. And he rescues Ishmael. And so, but Ishmael is not the chosen son. And so when Elijah runs off to Beersheba and he goes and he sits underneath this broom tree and he says, I want to die, what he's doing is he's putting himself essentially in the situation where he's saying, I'm like Ishmael. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, you haven't chosen me. You're not favoring me. I feel cursed or abandoned by you. And God shows the same compassion toward him that he showed to Hagar and Ishmael. And he's like, no, 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 arise and eat. And one, my favorite thing about this passage, you know, the tenderness, because this is the first time you've seen disobedience in Elijah. Mm -hmm. That's true. He, he runs. He's yep. not doing what God wants him to do. He runs out and says, I can't do it anymore. I have no strength left. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's enough. And when God comes and touches him, he doesn't say, get up and go back. He doesn't. He says, arise and eat. And then Elijah, when he eats, the Lord lets him sleep, lets him lay down again and, and get some rest, wakes him up and again feeds him. And then when he says, you know, remember, Elijah's on a mission that's not the Lord's mission. He's like, he's bailing south. He wants away from Ahab and Jezebel. He's done. He's tired. He's exhausted. And when Elijah's strength begins to return, right? God doesn't say, okay, now go north to the battle again. He says, arise and eat this journey that you're on, you know, that you've chosen to go on south. It's too great for you. Mm -hmm. And so I see where you're hurting. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get there so you can get some strength in your legs again. And I, man, 
It was like, I'm not sending you back to the battle. You need to rest. And like the compassion of the Lord, he doesn't just see us as chess pieces, you know, to use in his game. Like he's very personally concerned about Elijah. Oh, you're exhausted. You're worn out. You're discouraged. I'm not going to come and whip you, you know, and say, get back there. I didn't command you to do this. He comes to him in the middle of Elijah's exhaustion and makes him a meal yeah. and puts him to bed and lets him sleep, wakes him up and says, you know what? You wanted to go south? Well, it's too big of a mission for you, so let me make you another meal, and I'm going to carry you in my strength to the place where you're going to find rest. Like that's just so sweet and tender. And when I was in the middle of my crash and I did not have legs to run anymore, this story showed me the character of God. That and Pastor Tom coming alongside of me saying, hey, man, you're more than than a cog in the wheel – you're a child of God and you need to be cared for. You need to rest. You need to get your legs again. And so we're going to walk with you. And I mean, it wasn't as dramatic as all this, but he, you know, Tom had that same heart to remind me of the way the Lord sees us, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. for, for us, it's, we are his mission. You know, it's not that we're, <laughs> we're not means to an end for right. the Lord. Like we're the end. Yeah. We're his prize. And, you see that in the way that he treats Elijah. It's wonderful. Wow. I love this tenderness. Yes. You know, and when Elijah tells the Lord, hey, uh, take away my life, you know, I'm ready. To, that puts my mind back to Jonah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our series, when we talked about Jonah during our little series on that book. Um, you know, Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached the gospel to repent, basically told them, called them to repentance. And they did repent. Mm-hmm. And Jonah was angry because he did not want the Ninevites to repent. He did, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a, that whole series of podcasts is there. We'll explain all of why Jonah was upset, but Jonah goes outside of town and he plops himself down in a fit of anger <laughs> and says, okay, God, just take my life. And God comes to Jonah and doesn't rough him up either. Now, Jonah's different. He's not a broken prophet. He's not he exhausted. He grows up a vine, too. That's interesting. Right. But he, but God comes to Jonah and asks him this question. He says, do you do right to be angry? <laughs> <laughs> and I say that to say this, which is God is infinitely infinite in his knowledge. He's infinite in his wisdom. And he responds to us as we need. Mm-hmm. It's like he comes to us in the way that we need. For some people – we need a kick in the boot, a kick in the mm-hmm. rear. We need to be shaken up by God. And if that's what needs to happen, the Lord's not above doing that. You know, mm-hmm. it's like he will come rattle your tree if yeah. that's what needs to happen. I've heard I've heard one pastor say he comes to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. That's not a bad way to put it. <laughs> that's not a bad way to put it at all. Uh, so yes, I think about these different stories we have of these Old Testament prophets and how they react to their circumstances and how the Lord reacts to each of them differently. Um, we follow a God that has a, he sees what we desperately need and he's able to bring that to us. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that I love about this passage and, you know, it's true all throughout the Bible, but you come across the greatest heroes of scripture. The thing that is the hardest for them to deal with, and I think this is instructive for us, is when they sense that they're doing it alone, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you go back through and you think of Moses, where all the people are turning on him, all of the, you know, he fears for his life they're turning on him so much. 
And when he goes before the Lord, his complaint where he admits, like there's all these people who are like, okay, I'm done. I don't want to live anymore. <laughs> I mean, the, the list is long. It's Elijah. It's Moses. It's, it's Jonah. It's Job. It's, I mean, go down the line, Paul. Um, but when they reach their breaking point, their breaking point is almost always not physical suffering. It's not hunger. It's not thirst. It's I'm alone. So Elijah here, when he laments before the Lord, we'll see him say this again and again in this passage. It's I and I alone mm-hmm. am left. It's it's Moses saying, oh, my gosh, all the people have turned on me, and here I am alone. They want to kill me. It's Paul fretting over the fact that everybody seems to be turning on him, and he's doing this all alone. And you think even of our Lord, you know, when he when he goes to the cross, his greatest cry of agony is not the nails, the nails, or the whip, the whip. It's looking around with no friends at the cross. They Everybody has run from him. He's totally forsaken. And in the greatest pain is when the Father turns his face away and Jesus, the only one who's ultimately truly forsaken, and that moment cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I am utterly alone in this. Yeah. That's crushing. You know, the first thing that God declares not good in the story of creation is that Man should be alone. And whenever you see the greatest heroes crumble, the faithful heroes, the ones that we hold up, when they crumble, it's, I'm alone. No one's with me. I can't do this alone. And the Lord is showing Elijah, you are not alone. You know, and you mentioned um, Moses in that context. I know, I know that you and I both have an aversion to the Book of Numbers. <laughs> it's like then we don't hate the Book of Numbers, but just Numbers is one of those we, books that when you dig into the Book of Numbers, there's some stuff in there that's going to make you go, "What?" You know, <laughs> we will have to do this podcast a long time before we do a numbers on, series. A series on numbers, yeah. <laughs> but in Numbers chapter eleven, you have the scene where m- the people are being provided manna by the Lord and. And they're crying because they don't have meat. It's like God gives them (laughs) manna every day to sustain them magically. No ravens had to be involved. No, you know, they just, it just showed up and they could eat. And the people started weeping and, and just, and so Moses and the Lord are are having a bit of an argument. And, and in uh, Numbers chapter 11, um, in verses 14 and 15, here's what Moses says to the Lord. I am not able to carry all this people alone. Mm-hmm. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. It's like, so yet another example of these, of a singular leader and prophet of the Lord who says, I can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. I'm all alone, Lord. There's no one here with, just kill me and get it over with. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, It's a pretty common refrain. Yeah. That should be teaching to us that we cannot do Christianity isolated. Like when, when I hear people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be a part of a group. It's like, what Bible are you reading? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like one of the things that is so intentional is, and then the scriptures to teach is that you need one another. You need each other for encouragement, for exhortation, for, for all these things. There's seasons where my faith is you know, not whether I believe, but the strength of my faith to take another step in obedience is is wavering, and I just, you know, I don't want to do it anymore, and I need someone next to me to lift up my arms and say, hey, man, I'm with you. Yeah. I see your pain. I see your struggle. Let me help you fix your eyes on the Lord, and let's walk together through this. That is invaluable, and when you come to the seasons where life throws you the unexpected – 
having other believers to walk through that journey with you humbly, not like Job's friends, but right. humbly, is invaluable. And the Lord knows that you need it. The greatest heroes of the scriptures cannot do it alone. And when they sense they're alone, they crumble. Yeah. So let's get back to Elijah here. It says that uh, he took a journey to Mount Horeb, the mountain of the Lord, in verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, the word of the Lord talking to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Hmm. Elijah answered, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord, respond, the Lord responded, and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, same answer. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken. Did you hear me the first time, God? For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. He's rehearsed this a he few has. times. Yeah, I'm, th I'm getting the feeling that he has said that mm -hmm. as he was journeying south to himself mm -hmm. over and over again. I don't know if you're like that. I am like that. I am totally. a person who rehearses what I'm going to say. <laughs> if I know that I'm going to be, well, under this. Unless we're podcasting. Yeah. Well, under this, <laughs> under this circumstance, when I know that I have to go in and have a difficult conversation. I have rehearsed what I'm going to say out loud mm -hmm. so that the sound of my own voice does not surprise me when my ears hear me saying it. And I have rehearsed it and practiced it. And it's my background in broadcasting and in radio. It just, it's there. Mm -hmm. I want to know. And so my brain goes on autopilot. And the really the worst thing that can happen to me <laughs> and has hmm. happened to me at times, I've gone in with a full head of steam and I've, I've anticipated the circumstance and I go in and I, I drop my atomic bomb to begin. And then I'm expecting somebody <laughs> to nuke back. And then I'm ready to bring in the ground forces and the Navy. And we're going to have this huge war here in the office. And they hit me with a gentle answer. And then I'm like, I got nothing. I can't, I don't even know what to say next. I'm like, I didn't rehearse that part. You know, look what you've done to me here. You know, I think it's interesting here. There are so many things interesting mm -hmm. here, but I think that it's interesting here that, and we were talking about this. I think we may have a different, we're reading this differently because when I read this, I said that to me, it seemed like Elijah didn't do what the Lord said. When the Lord said in verse mm -hmm. 11, go out and stand on right. the mount before the Lord, it says, then the Lord passed by and all these things happened. And then the low whisper, and in verse 13, it says, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. I think Elijah said, nah, Lord, I'm good here in the cave. Mm -hmm. He missed the show. Yeah. And, and leading to this, you know, all of this passage is drawing our minds back to Exodus 18, 19, 20, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, which, mm -hmm. by the way, when it says 
that Moses or Elijah goes in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Well, Horeb is, is another name for Sinai. Horeb yeah. literally in Hebrew means arid or dry, desolate place. And Sinai is kind of mountain of thorns. But they're talking about the same place. That's where Moses received the law. But I love this because Elijah goes south to Beersheba and then a little bit more. And when the Lord comes, Elijah, as far as we know, wasn't planning on going to Sinai. He just wanted to die in the desert and said, I'm no better than any of my fathers. Think about how kind it is that God comes and says, oh, no, no, you're not done going south. The journey I have for you is too great for you to do on your own. So I'm going to give you strength in what I'm feeding you for you to be able to fast for 40 days and 40 nights on the way to Horeb. Does that ring any bells? That's exactly how long Moses is going to fast on top of Mount Sinai. But also think about this. You have Elijah who's like, I'm no better than any of my forefathers. And God looks at him and is like, are you kidding? Like, let let me take you to where I think you belong. Elijah, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you to the mountain where I only allowed Moses to come on, who is the greatest prophet in the history of Israel, who basically penned the birth charter of the nation of Israel, the first five books of the Bible. He stands head and shoulders above every figure uh, who's come. He is the ultimate prophet, and I'm going to treat you like I treated him. Do you understand how precious you are in my sight? Mm -hmm. So he takes him down to Mount Sinai. And when it comes in verse 9 and it says, there he came to a cave and lodged in it, every English translation translates it a cave. But what's interesting is there's a definite article there, the Hebrew word ha, and it means the cave. So what is the cave? Like it's speaking as though there's a specific cave. And a lot of commentators say that this is the the break in the rock, the cleft in the rock where Moses would have been when the Lord's glory passed by. And so Elijah is getting to experience all the things of Moses. And I love that the Lord does that with him. He not only, you know, like we talked about, feeds him and lets him sleep and feeds him again, but he's like, you think (laughs) that you're no better than any of our ancestors? Well, let me take you on a tour of what I think of you, Elijah. And then he gives him the Moses experiment experience, which is just awesome. You know, I that's just super tender and i think there's a lot of times where like if i if i were to hold somebody in the you know somebody who's listening right now and to say yeah you know we would all be very quick to say well i mean i'm not as valuable as elijah Mm -hmm. i mean you could say that out of humility and i mean elijah did some great things was super consequential for the kingdom of god but the lord died for you Mm -hmm. like what are you kidding yourself? Like, you don't think you're valuable in the sight of the Lord that Elijah's more or Moses is more? How much more valuable is Elijah than you? Both of you have the price tag of the Son of God on a cross. So you can't go to the Lord and say, I'm not as valuable as. There's an infinite price tag on your life. God hung on a cross to purchase you. That's your price tag. And so it's like he's taking Elijah on this tour to say, do you understand how precious you are? And we all need that tour, (laughs) you know? Every once in a while, we all need to stop and say, oh, my gosh. Like, Jesus didn't just die randomly, you know, generally for the world. He died for me. Mm. He paid for my sins because he would not have an eternity where I was separated from him. He loves me that much. I'm that precious to him. Yeah. 
And that's just, I mean, it's powerful. And so when you get to this thing where he's in the cave, this is what we had talked about. The Lord comes to him and says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And Elijah's like, no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm good in the cave. Yeah. But then the Lord does something amazing. Like he passes by in a great strong wind. He breaks the rocks. He's, but he's not in the wind. Then comes the next one is an earthquake. He's not in the earthquake. And then after that, a fire and he's not in the fire. And the thing is, all through the scriptures prior to this point, God has appeared to his people in those things. Yes. You know, you think of Moses, he comes down in a cloud of fire. The earth is quaking. There's winds going around and trumpets blaring and everything else. Like, this is how God came to Moses. And Elijah's like, I'm not going out in the middle of that. You crazy? And then after that, there's this, Elijah. you know, this, this soft, thin, silent whisper almost. The words in Hebrew are really interesting. It's it's like this this the whisper of nothingness or a thin thin idea of thin sound. It's almost nothing. I like the King James, which is the still small voice. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, I love that phrase. I mean, look, I I cut my teeth on the King James. I make no apologies for it. But there are certain <laughs> things, certain phrases that have become meaningful to me over the years that are very definitely King James yeah. English, and that's yeah, and that's that's like the standard for this passage. Yeah. Still small voice. That's famous. Famous. Yeah language but elijah hears it and what does he do he wraps his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave which is interesting why does he wrap his face um and that goes back to moses too you know is he wrapping his eyes so that he can't see because he's afraid to look upon the lord he's afraid that it will kill him you know like yeah why is he wrapping his face regardless of how you translate that he's a he's afraid he's humbled before this um, and I remember reading one commentary here um, when Elijah is safe in the mountain and you get the, the mountain is just utterly pummeled by the Lord, right? He comes with this great wind that just beats against the mountain and breaks the rocks and everything else. But Elijah's safe inside this mountain. Then an earthquake comes and it you know tears everything apart. Elijah's safe in that mountain. Then the fire comes and bashes against the mountain and Elijah is safe in the mountain and we're told in the New Testament this is the very rock you know that's compared to to Christ we mm-hmm. sing that hymn rock of ages I love that hymn but it's rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee and so this is a picture of what God is going to do for Elijah not just with a mountain but in Christ Christ is that rock who takes the wind, he takes the storm, he takes the earthquake, he takes the fire of heaven falling on him, and Elijah is safe in the rock. That's our story. Mm-hmm. But the Lord then comes, and this is just cool, with this gentle, still, small voice, and it's when Elijah hears that that he's like, ooh, I, w- I want that. Yeah. You know, and Now I'm going to come out. Now I'll stand in front of you. You know, my habit of trying to enter into all these stories, I'm always projecting myself in there. I'm thinking that if I'm Elijah and I'm in this cave and somebody starts breaking the rocks apart on the mountain (laughs) and then sends an earthquake that makes the mountain shake and rumble and then I see fire rushing past, I'm thinking that had to be pretty terrifying. If Mm -hmm. I was Elijah, I am scared, you know, out of my mind in that cave. Um, and then for God to come after that 
in come in quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that there's such a tremendous contrast. I, I, I believe that I believe that Elijah was being obstinate and depressive and and just wanting to be, you know, leave me alone, God. And God demonstrates His power, and yet. We're afraid, I mean, because we're afraid of the power of God. I mean, there, mm-hmm. let's be honest. I, I don't want God mad at me. That's, mm-hmm. that's a bad place to be, you know. Um, but then when he comes and calls to him, it's not shouting out of the storm and bring it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's that quiet voice, you know, it's, yeah. it's and, great. And he wants, cause what does Elijah want? Like after what he's just seen in Israel, he wants the Lord to rain fire. He does. He wants the Lord's vengeance to fall upon this wicked people. And how does the Lord respond? He's, you know, he's showing Elijah like, okay, here, this is my strong, you know, you expect that the only way that I can work is by raining down fire and consuming the wicked. Well, let me show you, like, I am that God here, have a hurricane, (laughs) you know, here, have an earthquake, have, I can do all that stuff. Right. But then he comes in this silent, still small voice. And he's showing Elijah like I'm I'm no less powerful yeah. when I come with gentleness. Yep. I'm still the same God, Elijah. Do you trust me that I know what I'm doing? That I'm not bringing vengeance on your timetable. I have a plan. Do you trust that a gentle God is every bit as powerful and fearful as the one who can bring the hurricane? Can you trust me? Yeah. So let's get the uh, conclusion of today's passage, uh, beginning in verse fifteen. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Saphat of Abel Meholah, I'm trying, you shall, <laughs> or um, Abel Meholah, there we go, uh, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. I thought that was interesting. And then the final verse here in our, our passage for today, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Um, I mean, what's happening here is God's prophesying judgment i mean israel mm-hmm. when he says he's going to leave seven thousand in israel what he means is the rest of them <laughs> you know something's going to happen to the rest of them Haziel is going to attack you know it's going to and then jehu and then if the kings miss them i'm going to have my prophet come in and clean up mm-hmm. but i'm going to leave the seven thousand who have not bowed to baal who have every mouth that has not kissed him and so the last thing elijah hears is you are not alone mm. that's the last thing he hears and that is what he needed to hear. Yep. That's what he needed to know. And so the Haziel of, of Syria is going to be a thorn in Israel's side. He's going to come and harass them, and he's going to put a lot of people to death. Jehu is going to be probably the last king of strength in Israel. And within a little bit more than a century of this story where we're at right now, the ten northern tribes of Israel are going to face – an invasion by the most wicked empire in the history of the world, probably, in my opinion, the Assyrians, who are the most vicious, nasty, 
empire and they come through and they wipe out the 10 northern tribes and take them away into exile so remember that whole Nineveh thing yeah it's yeah. got something to do with yeah, that yeah that's right that's right that's them that's them so so Jonah is going to come out of this northern kingdom of Israel he's going to be another prophet that Israel will not hear um and yeah. who himself struggles with understanding the nature of God. Yeah. Um, and then they get decimated. So yeah. Israel, from this point on, is just slipping down into yeah. judgment. And God has <laughs> told his prophet, all right, this is my plan. I'm letting you behind the curtain. I'm letting you see this. But now I want you to go and anoint this king and anoint this prophet and Eli- – or this king and this king and then Elisha as a prophet – and it's interesting, the first thing that Elijah does, because the order that's given to him is Hazael, and then Jehu, and then Elisha, but you can understand, you see the desperation and how much Elijah needs a friend in the trenches. The first thing he does is go get Elisha. He needs a friend. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's, I think that's very real. Like it's, it's, Imagine the emotional trauma of being Elijah, being under this intense, most wanted person for three years. Your every waking moment is involved in this. You're, you're seeing widows, sons die, and that you're resurrected. You're having to put prophets of Baal to death. There's nothing that's muted. And for three years, he is operating at adrenaline, warp speed, intense stress. He gets – this final victory, it doesn't work, and he collapses. And I think, you know, First Kings 19 is one of the very best passages for people who feel utterly worn out to see the character of God. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, man, you know, I would like to know his plan, you know, kind of like he opened the curtain and showed Elijah, hey, this is what I'm planning on doing. Um, but – it teaches you that the nature of God and how he sees you is no less for you than Elijah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's pretty, pretty spectacular when you think that the Lord walks with you and has this kind of tenderness for you when you run out of steam yeah. and you just don't have the fight to go on. You know, he's he's super tender, super wonderful. And he also doesn't want us to go through it alone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the, the true, you know, I had this conversation with somebody after our men's breakfast this, this morning, actually, um, who was talking about their struggle with loneliness. And one of the great truths about the gospel is that Jesus is the only man of God who's ever experienced true loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, he was forsaken by everybody so that you would never be forsaken. You know, the Lord promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. And the reason for that is because he so loves you that he has taken away every reason for him to leave or forsake you, which would be sin and rebellion. He's taken that upon himself. He has paid it. And how did he pay it? By being utterly alienated. Yeah. By having the priest of Israel who hated him, by having all the major powers who hated him, by having disciples who fled from him in his moment of need. And by going to a cross, and you got to imagine, I mean, Elijah, you know, he's created, he's got finite relationships, but on the cross, Jesus, who has an eternal relationship with the Father that is infinite in its love, like we can't even wrap our mind around that, how precious that would have been to Jesus, infinite in every respect, 
has it ripped away. Yeah. And we cannot imagine that desperation that he felt in that moment. I mean, like, and I imagine it would be like how I feel when you shove me underwater and hold me there. It would be like the desperation to find air to breathe, you know? Yeah. And Jesus was cut off mm. from that and experienced utter pain and alienation in that moment. Why? So that no matter what comes for the people of God, no matter what comes, you are never alone. Even when you think you're alone and you put yourself under the broom tree and you say, I'm no better than, than anyone and I'm alone and left and I'm doing this all by myself and nobody's with me. No, the Lord is with you. Yeah. He comes to you in those moments and he says, here, I'm feeding you. Yeah. Sleep, rest, take a break. You're more important than the mission in this moment because you are the mission. Yeah. You are his mission. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word for today and on this passage from First Kings. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that this has been an encouraging story for you. It certainly has, a, it certainly is a story that has been encouraging at times to both Sam and myself. So I hope that uh, you found it so also. Um, if you would like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, as well as in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available at an app store near you. Sam and I will return next week with the second half of First Kings 19 and more in the story of Elijah and Elisha. We get to meet him for the first time. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.